Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome and thank you for joining me today. I'm going to jump right in because we have a big lesson today with a lot of scripture in it, and so I may end up giving you more details about those scriptures and giving you the scripture references for you to look them up on your own in your own study. Because just for the sake of time, I want to get into the meat of this lesson. Today, we are finishing our Holy Week series, Passover Passion, The Reason for the Season, Volume 3, where we've been looking at the Passion prophecies and seeing how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We've looked through that so far in all of these lessons, and we see every one being fulfilled, even in surprising ways and in powerful ways. But that's not all. There's a little bit more that we're going to talk about today. And I do want to try to give you it in capsule form today because of the length of the various things that we want to look at. Today we focus on the topic alive. As we see the third day, Jesus' resurrection and the prophecies that it fulfills, at least focusing on some key ones from the scriptures. We saw even in the last lesson, his resurrection is guaranteed and Jesus knew it. He spoke about it from time to time. He said he would be raised on the third day. He knew all the prophets, such as those we've examined in these messages. In the last message, for instance, Psalm 16, Hosea 6, etc. This is why he could rest in hope like Psalm 16 said because he knew that God was not going to allow his Holy One to see corruption. This is why he could commit his spirit to God on the cross. Let's look at that one in the scriptures because that one we haven't spent much time on this week as of yet, but it is important today. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, we see when Jesus is hanging on the cross, this is the very last word that he said. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He is quoting here from Psalm chapter 31. I want to read verses 1 through 15 quickly of Psalm chapter 31. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. 
and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. So we know that David is writing this psalm, and obviously he is crying out to the Lord. But there are messianic elements in this as well. And so Jesus connected that when he cried from the cross, into your hand I commit my spirit because my times are all in your hand. Dear Lord God, my Father, that's what he was saying. And he trusted God, who was the just judge. In doing that, he trusted God, the just judge, to vindicate him because of his innocence and his sinlessness. Even in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 24, we see how he knew that God was going to raise him from the dead. Why? Because God is just. There is no double indemnity, so to speak, with God. There was a demand for a payment for the wages of sin, and that payment was the death. And God established the pattern in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, all the way from the beginning, that a innocent sacrifice would die in the place of the guilty. And all the while, all of that was building up for the innocent Lamb of God who would come and die for the sin of the world. And in doing so, he paid the death sentence. Jesus did. He paid it. He paid it with his own blood. Remember, he came with his payment. We looked at that earlier. The payment that he had to make and the work that was before him. That's why he could cry on the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. The death sentence was paid by him. And now all who will believe in him, he will save. He will apply that payment to you and I, to our account by faith. The exact same way it was done with Abraham and everyone since. When the innocent lamb of God died to pay the sin of the whole world, because the wages of sin is death, God's wrath for sin was satisfied. The payment was made, payment in full. It is finished. So it was not possible after that for the grave to hold him. Peter tells us that in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. So now we come to the resurrection where Jesus is alive. I'm going to give you these scripture references. I'm only going to read one of them this time just for the sake of time. But I'm going to give you all four Gospels because all four speak of this, as do many of the New Testament authors in their epistles as well and in the book of Acts. These references are Matthew chapter 28, the entire chapter, but especially 1 through 16 speaks of the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, 1 through 49. John chapter 20, verse 1 through 23. And I want to read Mark's account. In Mark chapter 16, verse 1 through 14, it says this. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, 
on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, Mark gives us a few of the details. The other gospel writers fill in the whole picture. Matthew, Luke, and John, as well as Mark, tell us all about the resurrection, and the apostles speak of it later in the New Testament. But from these scriptures, we gather these details of the resurrection, where he is now alive again. It was early morning, the first day of the week, meaning it was the day after their regular Sabbath on Sunday morning. The angel moved the stone. Now, the angels moved the stone, but they did not move it for Jesus to get out. We need to understand that. They moved the stone, I believe, at Jesus' command once he was raised from the dead. He had already been raised. He was raised now into a spiritual body, and he did not need the stone to be rolled away. But there had to be witnesses to his resurrection, and the stone had to be rolled away so that they could get in. He didn't need it for him to get out, but he needed the stone rolled away for the witnesses to get in. We just read where Mary was asking, who's going to move the stone for us? We can't get into him without the stone being moved. Why? Because they were in their physical limited bodies and the witnesses that were coming had to be able to see and prove with their own eyes that Jesus was not there. He was alive. The scriptures tell us in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, for instance, in verse 15 and other places, the Torah demanded that there must be two or three witnesses to affirm a matter. I want you to notice a few things in all of these scriptures that tell us about the resurrection. There were, for instance, two angels. There were two or three women coming. There was more than one. Peter and John also became two witnesses, according to John's account. There were two on the road to Emmaus. There were two men or angels later when Jesus would ascend back to the throne of God. 
and there are two witnesses that will come in the tribulation time, according to Revelation chapter 11. Why? Because God had established a pattern, and he says that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. In other words, it required two or three witnesses to verify any and every truth as reliable and valid and truthful. So there were two witnesses, beginning with the angels, at the resurrection, including the women and the apostles that came later, Peter and John, for instance. The grave clothes, we're told, also were laying in the exact same spot and way in which they had been wrapped around him. The Bible tells us that the handkerchief was laying off. It was a little bit separate. It doesn't mean it was folded and put away in the sense that we would think. It means it was laying exactly where his head had been because that was the grave cloth that was wrapped around his head, that handkerchief it's called. It's a sedarian in the Greek. So the sedarian, the cloth around his face, and the grave clothes that had been wrapped around him, remember, by Nicodemus and by Joseph of Arimathea when they buried him. Those were laying exactly where they had been, except there's one difference. There was no body in them at that time. They had just kind of fallen and dropped way down or drooped way down to the top of that stone bench where they were laying. They weren't shuffled around. They weren't disheveled and they were not taken. They were right there and they were laying exactly as they had been wrapped around him. The difference is there was nobody there. Now, when I taught this before, and I encourage you to look up my series and my message in the archives called Resurrection Power. It was one of the Holy Week messages that we did in the past. And in that lesson, when I taught this in my class, I took a baby doll and I had it wrapped up real tight in toilet paper all over. And I asked the class, I said, how, how can we get that baby doll out of that toilet paper? How is it possible? And there was only one of two ways. Either if it had been a grave robber, in other words, to prove this, if it was a grave robber, there's no other way they could have taken that body other than unwrapping it and leaving the claws maybe in a disheveled mess or taking the body and the grave clothes at the same time, meaning they wouldn't have been there when the women came in. So there was no other way physically in a limited body. In other words, what we're saying is this, the grave clothes and their position prove that a miracle had happened there. There's no way that Jesus' body could have come up from those grave clothes without disturbing them. And that's exactly what they saw, which is exactly why John writes in John chapter 20 and tells us that when he saw it, he believed because he knew a miracle had happened. And even Peter saw it, and Peter was still puzzled. Peter was kind of, what does this mean? There's no way. There's no way this could have happened. The only way is if it had been God himself raising the Son of God to life again, and he was raised in his spiritual body. We know that because this contrasts with Lazarus. When Lazarus was raised, remember, he came out of the tomb 
still bound in the grave clothes. Jesus had to tell them, loose him and let him free. But when Jesus was raised, he came straight up. There was nothing that bound him. That's the miracle of the resurrection. That's what John saw and believed. And that's what the angels and all the witnesses were there to testify to. Now, the other thing that was inside the tomb when they looked were two angels sitting at the feet and at the head, where the feet and the head had laid. And that is the picture of the mercy seat. We see the mercy seat there in John chapter 20. Paul tells us that Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. His blood has now been applied to the mercy seat on our behalf, just like the blood of the bulls and goats would be applied to the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. It's a beautiful picture here of the atonement that Jesus has obtained for us. Then we see Mary who runs into Jesus, but she thinks at first that he's a gardener. And he tells her when she recognizes him, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father. But later on their way home, one of the gospels tells us, and that same day later with the apostles and with the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus could be handled. He could be touched then. What was the difference? He said, don't cling to me now because I've not yet ascended to my father. But later that same day, he tells them that they can handle him. Why? Because in, the, in between, he had ascended to the father. There's a reason for that. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 23, one of the three special feasts that occurred this same weekend that we celebrate, Passover weekend, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection is pictured in the offering of the first fruits, in the festival of first fruits, where they would take the Omer offering, and this is what Jesus was doing. He had to ascend in that moment, appearing to God in heaven, bringing his Omer himself to the Father, to the high priest of heaven, and presenting himself as the Omer to God to fulfill the Feast of First Fruits. Now, the Feast of First Fruits is given to us in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9 through 14. And it was where the children of Israel were commanded that when they would gather together for Passover and unleavened bread, they had to observe the Feast of First Fruits also, which means this was in the early days of the barley harvest. And so they would have to take the very first ripe sheaf of the barley harvest, and they would have to take it to Jerusalem and present it on First Fruits morning to the temple, to, to the priest in the temple, and it was to be given to the Lord. It was offered to the Lord. And they could not partake of any of their other barley harvest until this was done. This was a symbol and it was an entrustment to God guaranteeing the harvest to come because they were giving God the first of it and believing God that he would bless the remaining harvest. And it was given in anticipation of the remaining harvest. So the barley harvest was the first cycle. Then there would be the wheat 
harvest at Shavuot or Pentecost. And then there would be the gathering of all the others, the fruits, the grapes, the nuts, all of the things that would be gathered. And it's at the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. So after he had ascended that morning on resurrection morning to present himself as the Omer on the morning of resurrection, then after then when he returned, later that day he could be handled just like the first fruits offering the Omer that was given at the temple. Once they had offered their Omer to the Lord in the temple, then they could enjoy the harvest afterward. All of this was done to fulfill prophecies, direct and typologies. As we have studied even thus far this week, there's no difference with the resurrection. In Isaiah 53, we were told that he would enjoy his spoils and he would be satisfied and he would be honored and rewarded. In Hosea 6, 4 and 5, we saw where the prophet Hosea prophetically spoke about the resurrection on the third day that he would rise again. The Omer and the first fruits that we just talked about happened on the day after the Sabbath, the Omer offering. We saw in the last episode about Psalm chapter 16, verse 9 through 11, where David had prophesied of the resurrection. We saw in the last Message also about Jonah, the son of Jonah, three days and three nights. He was in the belly of the whale or in the belly of the big fish. Same with Jesus, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then he would be raised again. He would be alive again. Daniel 6, we saw a pattern, possibly a little glimpse at least, of where Daniel had been thrown in the lion's den and the stone had been placed there. But then the stone was removed and Daniel was found to be alive. Very similar to what we see here in the resurrection. So the miracle of the resurrection. This is another part of the miracle. And it was an absolute miracle that had been prophesied, but could only be done by God. In the Old Testament, in the time, when they would offer the Passover lambs, they were dead. They would never ever live again. Those animals were dead. But God's Passover lamb was going to be alive again and alive forevermore. Let's look at a few places about that. Revelation chapter 1. I want to read verse 10 through 18. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Bergamus, to Theatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to, and to, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, 
I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. God's Passover lamb is alive forevermore. Just a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 5, we see him in there as the only one worthy to open the scroll. And when we see him, he is like a lamb that had been slain. Why? Because he was God's Passover lamb who did get slain, who was killed. But now he is alive forevermore. In Romans chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, we see how he defeated death with death itself. Isn't that like God? He took the very thing that bound people in death to use that for the death of Jesus through the death of Jesus to defeat death itself. Revelation 2.8 speaks of this. And Psalm chapter 68, verse 20, prophetically spoke about it at that time. In Psalm chapter 68, verse 20, it says this, Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong, escapes from death. Three different witnesses here that verify the prophetic word fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. David, Paul, and John the Apostle when he's given the revelation from the Lord that he witnesses himself. We also see in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 32, Peter also is a witness to these things. As a matter of fact, he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 26, verse 19 through 23, we see Paul verifying it also. Paul was a witness to the living, risen Lord. And he writes about it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, where he calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. He, in other words, was the very first person ever raised to new life in a brand new body, in an eternal spiritual body. No one else had ever been raised from the dead before into a brand new spiritual eternal body. Jesus was. All that had been raised before, they had to have the stones open and moved away for them to get out. They had to have the grave clothes loosened from them for them to be able to be free again. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was raised to life in his brand new eternal body. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is alive. So now we can know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely true. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here it is, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that is absolute truth, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He did everything, and everything that entire week, as we have seen, was according to the scriptures according to exactly what was written 
in the past. The gospel of Jesus is well-founded. It is based on the word of God, and it never contradicted the word of God in any place. It never failed to fulfill the word of God in any place. It is absolute truth. So, what did the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord accomplish? I want to run through these very quickly as we draw to a close. The first thing I wanted to point out is atonement. We discussed it earlier in our episode on atonement, but it was now completed. Jesus said, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full. It is done. For all who will believe, they can receive that atonement. Approval, availability, accomplishment, and acceptance also. Jesus' death as the Passover lamb dying gives us life forevermore. The blood has been applied to our house when we believe in him, and therefore we have life forevermore. I want to mention a couple of quick things on this point before we move on. In Luke chapter 9, verse 27 through 31, it says this, But I tell you truly, Jesus is speaking here, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we find out here in Luke's account, now all of the Gospels tell us about this in further detail in several of the other Gospel accounts. But Luke is telling us here the topic of discussion between Jesus and these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, was Jesus' death and what it would accomplish. It's very interesting when you see there is a connection, I believe, in Psalm chapter 133. A very, very short psalm, but still a powerful psalm. In Psalm 133, I'm going to read the three verses. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. In the Mount of Transfiguration, we see them in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. For there, from the Mount Hermon, in the gospel accounts of the Mount of Transfiguration, it says it was a very high mountain in Israel. It was in the northern part of Israel, and Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It is a very high mountain. There's much more that we could talk about in regard to Mount Hermon and what all it represented, but it was a very high, if not the highest mountain of Israel. Even today, they have snow skiing up there much of the year. It's the only place where you can go and have that sometimes. But it is from that mountain that the blessing of life forevermore, eternal life, has been released. 
Who was on that mountain? Jesus was on that mountain with Moses and Elijah. And the topic they were discussing was what was going to be accomplished through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that was ahead of him. Eternal life would be granted to all who would believe. Eternal life, that blessing of life forevermore, would be able to be released when he completed his mission. And he could do it because he is the father of eternity, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He was the given son, the given child, the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity. And so he was able to accomplish eternal life for all who would believe. And now we can be born again. John even writes and he tells us the purpose of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, is that we may know Jesus Christ and have eternal life, which is found only in him. Eternal life was now made available to all who would believe because of God's approval on that perfect sacrifice. The Father God in heaven, who is a just judge, could now legally forgive us from our sins because the payment for our sin had already been paid by someone else. That makes us accepted in the beloved. The other things that were accomplished, acquittal and activation. This acceptance, this new life, eternal life granted to us by acquittal is found for us and explained to us by Paul when he talks about being justified by faith alone in Romans chapter 1 through 5. God is a judge and he can acquit guilty sinners of their crimes when they repent and when they call upon him and believe in Jesus because the death sentence for their crime has already been paid by the substitute, the innocent lamb that was given by God on their behalf. Faith activates this, and we have now a legal basis for this acquittal by God, given freely to us through his grace by faith, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. We also have adoption, allotment, and addition. We are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. We see that in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. We see it in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. In John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, all who will receive him, to them he gives the right or the privilege to be called a child of God. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John writes, and in essence, he says, how beautiful, how marvelous. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we now can be called children of God. We've been adopted into his family and now freely made children of God. We've been added to the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, as living stones, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we also know that we're part of the body by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 in some different verses. Every person has gifts, talents, and service work. Paul and Peter both tell us about that. 
and every person's work contributes to the effectiveness and the accomplishment of the gospel of Jesus in the earth today because we are his church that he was building, he said in Matthew chapter 16. We also have assurance, and I want to close us down with this. We have assurance of salvation. We have assurance of our salvation. John 3, 16, the beloved scripture tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, will not perish, but shall have eternal life. John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 4, and in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, that we have assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ when we have believed in him, we are born again, and that gives us assurance of our salvation. I want to read 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. We can know now that we have eternal life. We can have assurance of salvation because of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. We also have the assurance of our resurrection and life with him forever in our new eternal bodies. Paul writes about that in what we can call the treatise on the resurrection, and it is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I encourage you to read the entire chapter, but I want to read just a few verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to read verses 14 through 20. Let's actually begin the reading in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the dead. And that is what guarantees us the assurance of salvation and the assurance of our resurrection to come, which John also speaks about in the book of Revelation. And I want to close us out with just a couple of quick passages here. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read verse 11 through 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, 
that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is what Jesus' resurrection has accomplished for all who will believe. And these things are ours because Jesus died for our sins, was buried in the grave, and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. I want to close us out now with this final word. In Job chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, we can say as Job did, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Hallelujah. We can say the same thing that Job said. I know that my Redeemer lives. Jesus is alive forevermore. Forevermore. Hallelujah. I pray that this series of messages has been a blessing to you this Holy Week. Join us again for future messages and series brought to you through Covenant Truth Ministries. God bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.